What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Perry Marshall. If I if I get a room full of people, uh, it doesn't matter what I'm measuring. It's almost certainly going to be 80-20. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Perry, thanks for making time. Hey, thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, uh, we're excited to have you because we like force feed your book to all our staff and hand it out to our clients and, and stuff. But can you tell people about the story behind um, why 80-20 marketing came about the book? Well, you know, it, it probably goes back 20 years when I was um, booted out of my engineering job and I went into sales and um, I I thought it was going to be a lot easier than it actually was. I mean, uh, talk about going into something with a little too much confidence. Um, and it, it was two years of bologna sandwiches and ramen soup. And I, I remember having this conversation with my wife and we just had a baby. And uh, she's like, you know, Tana's only going to be 13 months old, like one time. Like you're missing a lot of stuff. And unfortunately, I didn't really know any way around like how to not miss it because I was just going balls to the wall uh, as hard as I possibly could. And, you know, at the time, my, my mentality was, you know, massive action solves every problem. And if I could just do enough stuff, like something's bound to work, I'm going to sling some mud against the wall. And I really really just had no idea where the levers were. I also didn't really understood how it is that I sell. 
I was watching other people and I was trying to imitate them and they weren't me and I wasn't them. And so it was just a, a really bitter struggle. And 8020 Sales and Marketing is is the book that I wish somebody had given me 20 years ago. But it's also my manifesto on how sales and marketing uh, should be done. And, um, you know, I, people don't realize how much 8020 is absolutely everywhere. It is everywhere you turn. It is everywhere you look. It is like under your feet. It's out your uh, bedroom window. Um, and we, we can get into that, but I, th I think there's like a whole paradigm of how you do sales and marketing that's very different from what most people are being taught. Yeah, and I know I just called the book 8020 Marketing. It's 8020 Sales and Marketing on Amazon or go to Perry's website. You can actually get a discounted version there. Um, but, you know, I think when I was reading the book, um, you know, my, my early 20s were spent in sales jobs because as much as I was trying to get out of sales, nothing else would pay me as well, right? Yes, and, uh, right. You know, a dozen years ago, I ended up owning a sales training company and I, I think I was living what you're talking about because I, I got up at 5 a.m. and I made 100 calls to the East Coast and I'd get my mm -hmm. two appointments set. And at 3 p.m. I'd switch to the West Coast and try and get another 50 calls in and get an appointment for the West Coast. I just five days a week, that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So when I read your book and you talk about, you know, writing for the magazines and racking the shotgun, you know, attracting people to you. I mean, it just sounds like you invented inbound marketing before inbound marketing was a thing. Um, you know, that's that's really kind of true. Um, when I when I was uh, when I was pounding the pavement and trying to get all these appointments with people, I was like, there's got to be a better way there. You've got to be able to outsmart this somehow there. There must be. And, and I was actually, you know, and I would. I would I would try all of these crazy things and and every now and then something would work but I hadn't discovered the world of direct marketing and and what I eventually found out was oh yeah there are a lot of ways um, that that you can position yourself so that somebody will actually want to talk to you first and one of the things that I discovered about myself was that I have a constant consultative sales personality. I am not a like timeshare salesman. Um, I'm a person who wants to sell based on actually solving your problems. I tell you one, one time uh, my boss calls me into his office and he goes, he goes, you know, Perry, like you, you, you take these little, you know, these little gizmos into these customers and you hand them these things and you, you say, you know, here, you know, I think this would solve your problem. He goes, he goes, you're a problem solver. And he goes, that's really great, Perry, but we need you to sell something. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the thing was like, like they wanted to sell me something, whether it solved a problem or not, like, dude, just go out and get the order. You know, there's some like really red blooded, you know, meat eating sales guys that can do that. And I just couldn't, like, I had to go in there with some reason for being and, and, and what I found was that if I used publicity and media to establish my expertise and, and to burrow down into the questions that nobody was answering, um, that if, if the phone call came into me and they wanted my advice, all of a sudden they're asking me like, so when's the next time you're going to be in Cleveland? 
Um, and it, this was so completely different from my experience of knocking on doors. It was almost like the best kind of therapy ever. Like, oh my goodness, like I'm getting emails and phone calls from people that actually want help and they want a problem solved and I tell them how to solve it. And then a purchase order comes in like, oh my goodness, I, I, I think I just died and went to heaven. So um, you know, there is hope for that sales guy or sales gal who, you know, doesn't want to be in that meat grinder. Yeah. You know, um, it's, you think about like, no wonder people resent salespeople when someone feels objectified and like someone's trying to cram, cram something down their throat, right? It's like a natural defense mechanism versus the interaction you just described where, Somebody who thinks you've got something to offer is reaching out to you to find out if you have it. I mean, doesn't that, I feel so natural. <laughs> no wonder you enjoy it, right? Well, yeah. And it's, it's, it's so much more like you, you can see that they, people would tell me things like, well, Perry, you know, it's all about the relationship and, you know, and I'm thinking of like, oh yeah, so I'm going to read the Dale Carnegie book and, and it tells me to look at the you know, the fishing trophy on the guy's thing and the, then talk to him about fishing. Like, like I'm going to have any kind of a good conversation with somebody about fishing. Like, like it was so fake, mm -hmm. you know, like I want to go, I want to go in here and actually solve the guy's problem. And, and what, the, but there was all these layers to it. Like, first of all, I had to be talking to somebody who actually had the authority to solve the problem. And one, one of the uh, thing, uh, things in uh, early in the book I talk about, um, I got it from my friend John Paul Mendoza's The Five Power Disqualifiers. And these things are really ingenious because these are the five things that are always true every time anybody sells anything. And, and here's what they are is, number one, they have the money. Um, <laughs> now, that might seem kind of basic, but I can't tell you how many times that I would go try to sell something to somebody and never even have the idea whether they had the money, did they have the budget, did they have the authority to make the purchase or anything. Like I would just go start talking. Um, do they have a bleeding neck? Uh, meaning, do they have a problem that they want to solve? Um, many times people have sort of kind of a problem, but they don't really have a problem. And if they don't really have a problem, like they might politely sit there and listen to your dog and pony show, but they're not actually going to buy anything. Um, and it, it's so much more satisfying to sell to a customer that actually has a real urgent problem right now. Third one is, do they buy into? to your unique selling proposition because they might have the money, they might, uh, they might have the problem, but they don't buy into your particular way of solving the problem. Another one, do they have the ability to say yes? And I don't know how many times I was selling to people who could say no, but they couldn't say yes. So I could, I could maybe get to the next person but I could never actually talk to the person who was going to make the decision. And, and so I would just kill time by confusing activity with productivity. Um, and I mean, I burned thousands of hours doing that. And then do they fit into your, do you fit into their overall plans? 
you know, like, well, I know uh, you've got the best kind of roofing, uh, you know, shingles in the world, but we're moving to Tucson next week. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and like if all five of those things aren't in place, uh, then you're not going to sell anything. And, and most salespeople are too timid to actually ask the questions and find out like right now, um, you know, do, do you meet these qualifications? And um, I, I want to tell you a story from the book. Um, my, my friend, John Paul Mendoza, um, who I mentioned earlier, he dropped out of high school when he was 17. He was halfway through his senior year and he hitchhiked to Las Vegas and he became a professional gambler. He had been reading gambling books. He'd gotten totally fascinated with it. And he said, I want to do that. So in spite of the objections from his parents and everybody else, off he goes. And so after a few weeks in Vegas, he's like, man, this is a little harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, and um, he meets this guy named Rob. And Rob runs a gambling ring. And uh, they start talking and uh, Rob says, well, for a percentage of, of your winnings, I'll teach you how we do this thing. And so they shake on it. And as soon as they shake on it, Rob goes, jump in the Jeep, John, we're going for a ride. And so they are uh, going down the highway and John says, all right, how do I win more poker games? And Rob goes, you have to play games where you're going to win. And that means finding people who are going to lose. And those people are called marks. You need to play with the marks. You don't play with other professional poker players. You play marks. And he goes, so where do I find marks? And he goes, here, I'll show you. And he pulls into a parking lot of a strip club. And they walk into this club and there's – 120 decibels of rock music in there and there's women and there's people drinking and all this stuff going on. Welcome, welcome to Vegas. Sit, welcome to Vegas. And, and he sits down and, and as soon as he sits down, he pulls a sawed off shotgun out of his jacket and he, he holds it under the table and he opens it up and he, he goes, watch this. And he, he racks it makes that racking sound and there's a few people in the club that kind of look around like what was that and uh the owner comes over he's like hey uh what's going on over here and the guy goes nothing's no problem just teaching the lad a lesson don't worry about us we're not going to cause any trouble here he goes john did you see those people that turned their head when they heard that sound and john's like yeah and he goes don't play poker with them. <laughs> They're not marks. Play poker with everybody else. And that was John's first lesson in rack the shotgun. And rack the shotgun is the heart of 8020. Uh so every time you you find out you do they have the money or not, 
you're racking the shotgun. Do you have a bleeding neck or not? That's rack the shotgun. You send out an email. Some people open it. Some people don't. That's rack the shotgun. Some people click on the link. Some people don't rack the shotgun. Some people buy the thing. Some people don't rack the shotgun. Some people book an appointment. Some people don't. It's all racking the shotgun. And racking the shotgun in the strip club meant those biker dudes over there who instantly recognize those sound, those are badass. You don't ever want to play poker with those guys. You want that kid that just got here from Wichita with his grandmother's inheritance money, and he thinks he's going to get rich in Vegas. Like, that's the kid you play poker with. And so, so John learned this, but everything in sales is 80-20, and everything else is rack the shotgun. Now, we haven't even really stopped to explain 80-20. And- yeah, actually, <laughs> that's kind of where I want to go next is um, – because to me, I mean, most people have heard 80-20 in conversation. Even, you know, people have had it explained to them somewhat, right? But I think what, you know, why we at our company got a bit of an obsession with your book is as you talk about, like, the power laws of 80-20 on 80-20 on 80-20, like how, you know, you know, obviously one direction it's going down the toilet, but the other way it's like a positive feedback loop up. Can you mm-hmm. can you talk about that for a minute of of, like – yeah, it's great at one level, but when you keep going up with it, it becomes incredibly powerful. Yes, and and I don't know of anybody else who ever talked about this before I did. And actually, it came to me in this like giant epiphany. It was I read Richard Koch's book, The Eighty Twenty Principle, um, uh, a number of years ago, and I'm sitting in the coffee shop, and I get to page fourteen, and he makes this throwaway comment where he talks about chaos theory and how it had something to do with 80-20. And suddenly I made this connection. And what I realized was 80-20 is really, it's the same thing that causes avalanches and sand dunes and, uh, and, and snowflakes and all these patterns in nature that people call in weather, okay? And 80-20 is actually the math of chaos. And so – and chaos is a very specific thing. It's not just, it's not just disorder. Chaos is, is kind of order in the disorder is what it actually is. It's predictability in the unpredictability. It's sort of like, you know, it's November in Chicago right now and like I – you can't predict like exactly – uh, what the weather is going to be like any on any given day, but you pretty know, much know what weather in November is going to be like wherever you are, okay? And and you can kind of guess what the highs and what the lows are. Well, what eighty twenty says is that if I if I get a room full of people, uh, it doesn't matter what I'm measuring; it's almost certainly going to be eighty twenty. So I'll give you some examples. First of all, income. Uh, we could be looking at, at literally a room full of people on a particular day uh, at a particular place. We could be looking at an entire country or an entire continent, and 20% of the people are going to make 80% of the money, and 80% of the people are going to make 20% of the money. It's also true of like shoes, okay, or domain names, or real estate, or or almost anything. But the thing that most people don't know is that 
it's fractal, which means pattern inside a pattern inside a pattern inside a pattern. So 20% of the 20% make 80% of the 80%. And 20% of the 20% of the 20% make 80% of the 80% of the 80%. So for example, I did a seminar a few months ago where I said, stand up if you own shoes. And then I started going up in numbers from five to 10 to 20 shoes to 40 shoes to 80 shoes and sit down if you own less than 80 pairs of shoes or 160 pairs of shoes. I had a lady in this room of maybe 300 people who had 800 shoes. I had a guy in a room full of 800 people who owned 5 million domain names. And I showed everybody, you know what, not only does 20 percent of the people own 80 percent of the shoes like one person might own 50 percent of the shoes okay and 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 almost everything is like this and almost nobody really knows it and so what that means is with any group of people there is a super high leverage person whether it's shoes or domain names or real estate or income or or, uh, you know, uh, or, or Furbies or, or whatever, um, that, that there are these huge inequalities and almost everything in the world, uh, runs in power laws, like powers of 10. And so sales is not additive. It's multiplication. It's, it's actually exponential. Like everything is exponential. And when you don't know this, you walk over $100 bills to pick up quarters. It's crazy. <laughs> okay, so I have a question about this. So totally seeing this in my own life. I, I, after I left mergers and acquisitions for Citigroup, I ran a, a private investment fund in Canada buying energy investments. And um, we had retail fund. So I had probably 1,100, I had about 1,200 investors averaging about $15,000 in each. And I had one investor for $8 million in. I mean, obviously there's, yes. but, but do you know what I mean? Like I had a few, I had a bunch of fifties and a couple 250s and then, in, you know, and then I had somebody for 1.25 and then I had somebody for 8 million, but I mostly had, you know, 1100 people at 15 grand. Right. Or like in the consulting company I worked for before we started this one, Mylan advisors, um, you know, mostly we sold, I sold seminars for 15 grand for a two day seminar uh, or, you know, I'd send sell people 20 grand worth of their own books. They're teaching other people. And then I had one client buy $2.8 million worth of books, you know, like, so it's wow. fun for me to have seen it. But here's my question. Even though I know this, why do you think myself and so many salespeople have the temptation to take every call and to like, why, why do we give into scarcity and why do we, why do we not plan better looking for the, 20% of the 20% of the 20%. Why do we why do we spend so much time on so much mediocre stuff? What do you think it is about human nature or conditioning or even when we know this, why do you think many of us waste time? Uh, uh, there are several reasons. I'll give you two. One of them is is education conditions you to do this. Now, part of this is good. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that civilization exists is to make 80-20 tolerable for everybody, okay? <laughs> you know, it's why we have mm -hmm. welfare. It's, it's why we have public schools. You know, like every kid gets an education. And like really, you know, in, in the Declaration of Independence, you know, 
all men are created equal and endowed by the creator. Yeah, I, like, I was a Boy Scout. That, Everybody that gets a turn. Right? Everybody gets a turn. And so that's good. Okay. But this gets pounded in your head to such a degree that you literally stop seeing the inequality. Okay. And so like, like everything with grades, like, okay, you're supposed to get A's and B's in chemistry and English and math and this and that. When in fact, the, the truth is, is that in your life and in career, you, there's going to be like a few things that you learn really, really well and all the rest of it almost doesn't matter. Okay. Um, and, and like education, it really, it really kind of pounds this out of people. Um, and, and it's this kind of perfectionism. Okay. And, and actually that's, that's the second part. There is a perfectionism that I think um, is really a form of self-sabotage. Okay. And, and here, here's the thing. Uh, let, so the quick story, um, in, in that first sales job, which, uh, you know, I, it, it was, a, it was really hard and I didn't really make any money. Uh, and, and, and I got fired after two years, but Hey, you know, I, I, I really tried and they tried to make it work. And, and, and about a month into, after I started, there was this meeting in Detroit and I was supposed to go to it and I woke up one morning and opened my eyes and looked at the clock and like, oh my, but my plane leaves in like seven minutes. Like, <laughs> no way you're making that plane, right? And you know that adrenaline, that awful, dreadful mm -hmm. feeling, you know, it's going through my veins and you know, my wife drives me to the airport. We pay the upgrade or switchover fee and, and, and I go to Detroit. I'm like, how did I miss my alarm clock? And I came home that night and I figured out the only explanation is that I literally shut it off. And I never did that. I only did it that day. And it was an important meeting. And I figured out I had sabotaged myself. And I could give you like a litany of stories where I shot my own self in the foot on the best possible day to seize the best possible opportunity. Like I would do this over and over and over again. And I think most people at some level are terrified of those 80-20 moments or those 1% moments or those, that $8 million investor because whatever head trash you've got or whatever self-image issues or fear of success or fear of failure or whatever it is. Um, and so what we do in order to avoid um, talking to the $8 million investor is we call everybody or we like sit there and we endlessly polish and perfect each email to get the words just exactly right. And we do, we polish these little turds and, <laughs> and I just seen this so many times. I've done it so many times. Mm. Um, like I, I remember this one project, um, I was procrastinating, procrastinating. I sit down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to write the sales copy. I'm going to get this thing cranked out. And like 10 minutes into it, like this voice in my head says, Perry, it's time to go get a haircut. Like, <laughs> I don't need a haircut right now. I like, like I almost jumped up and like, and I, I, but I caught myself that time I go, that's my inner head trash. That's, you know what? 
what this is an important price. I could tell this is actually going to make money. And it did that, that project ended up making me over a million dollars over a period of several years. And I came to recognize like you can actually harness the head trash to tell you which things are important and which things uh, that you should procrastinate on. Um, the ones you should procrastinate on are, are usually the things that you're doing right away. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're big fans of, of like Anders Ericsson's book Peak or the Talent Code, you know, all these neuroplasticity books about the ruts we get in. Mm. And I think yeah. the, the conditioning of everybody gets a turn plus, you know, using it as a form of procrastination from that, that big opportunity I don't want to screw up. That makes a ton of sense to me. Listen, I think this is a good place to end for, for part one. Um, tune in for our next episode to, to catch the rest of our show with Perry. But before we go, Perry, can you talk to people about uh, the marketing DNA test they can get from you? Yes. Um, it's uh, regularly $37, but there is a link in the 8020 Sales and Marketing book where you can get it for free. And I created this test because... I needed a tool that said, this is how you sell, which is different than how the other guy sells. So there are some people who their way of selling is they're going to sit in a cave and they're going to craft some piece of copy for several weeks, or they're going to edit videos or something. And when it's perfect, they're going to put it out there and they're going to hook a bunch of people. And there's other guys, they're like hostage negotiators. And you just like put them out there on the wing of an airplane. And they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're just going to figure it out. And they're going to work it out. And there's some people that pluck people's heartstrings. And there's other people that use logic and numbers and tables and graphs. And, and I realized from working, I mean, I've worked in 300 different industries with every kind of marketing and salesperson you can imagine. People sell very differently. And I killed myself trying to be like other people. So we created this test. And, and most people who take this test say, wow, that nailed me. That says exactly how I sell, how I don't sell, how I should do it. So I'd encourage you to get the book so that you can take this test. And I've had people launch entire careers just from this test. That's awesome. Okay. Highly recommend it. Um, go to, go to Perry's site, um, or grab the book on Amazon and, uh, and go through that and tune in for our next show where we finish our interview with Perry. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes. So we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always come to iCollective.co for show notes and, to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.